I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Today, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with Jean Case, who is the author of the book, Be Fearless, and is also the CEO and co-founder of the Case Foundation. And her work in literally trying to change uh, the world has introduced her to a number of people who have been fearless in making a difference in the world or a difference in, in their lives. She accomplishes the admirable task of being both inspiring but prescriptive about how this can happen and the qualities that she sees and the steps that she sees are critical to being able to achieve your goals. So I I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoyed the opportunity to speak with her. Over the last 20 years, the Case Foundation has contributed more than $100 million in funding to businesses and nonprofits that use entrepreneurship and innovation to drive social change. Jean, as a co-founder of the foundation with her husband, Steve Case, has discovered and embraced the role of being fearless as a key ingredient for everyone and anyone to realize their potential and purpose. She is also the chairwoman, first woman in its 130-year history, of National Geographic Partners. Jean was an early executive at America Online, where she directed the marketing and branding as AOL brought the Internet to the world. That alone could be a book. But Jean joins us today to discuss her inspiring new book, Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose. As Eric Schmidt, former executive chairman of Google, says, Jean Case has done what many before her have tried but have been unable to achieve, break down the essential qualities and principles that drive success. Her book tells us in no uncertain terms what it takes to break through in an increasingly crowded world of ideas. With legitimately surprising results and compelling stories, Be Fearless inspires all of us to take risks we usually wouldn't, conquer the fears that get in our way, and lead a fulfilling life of clear purpose and maximum impact. Jean, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks, Roxanne. So how did being fearless bring you from being the daughter of Norma Norton, a single mom, (laughs) in, couldn't make this up, normal Illinois, to become an admired, highly respected woman running one of the largest, most innovative foundations in the world. Well, first of all, thanks for your kind words. You know, probably right at the outset, we should make it clear that I describe uh, what fearlessness is not. Fearlessness is not the lack of fear but rather the ability to look fear in the eye, dig deep, and find the courage to push past it. Mm. So if anyone has ever referred to me as fearless, you know, that's how I interpret what they're saying, and that would be true of my life. Because like so many people along life's path, 
I've had fears and failures, and it was really, you know, it came down to a moment of, can I push past it and keep going? But I should say, you know, I wrote the book because I've had the chance uh, in my career to travel to communities in the United States and around the world, and I see one thing in common everywhere I go. People have ideas about how to make a better world, but sometimes they're stopped with this idea. They think it's going to take some super special quality, Mm -hmm. whether that be genius or wealth or special connections. So we at the Case Foundation undertook some research a few years back looking at the core qualities of change makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators. And what we discovered was isn't anything superhuman like the qualities people suspect it mm-hmm. is. Instead, it's just five principles that are present wherever transformational breakthroughs take place. And so go over those for us, because one of the things I liked that the book did in going through the five principles is I think a lot of people right at the outset get stuck by thinking they can't do it. They're not the one to do it. It takes uh, an extraordinary amount of money or access or genius, as as you said earlier. But share with us these five principles that the study revealed. Sure. Um, well, it starts with make a big bet. And we like to say make a big bet and make history. And what I'm talking about there is really aiming for a big idea, something transformational. You know, it's very easy to kind of live your life trying to make incremental changes. But the people that break through aim for something higher. Now, what they do is they might take incremental steps along the way to get to that big bet. You call the breakdown, you use a cool word for breaking down the big bet. Yeah, I say you need to chunk it. Chunk it. You know, chunk it into pieces. And sometimes those pieces are going to be actions you take once a day. Sometimes those pieces might be actions you can take once a week because, you know, you're crazed in a job or you're raising kids or whatever it is. But the key is make sure you have a big idea, then think about the smaller steps you need to take. The first chapter of the book is called Start Right Where You Are. So mm-hmm. with a big bet, you want to start right where you are and do something, you know, routinely that gets you closer to that big bet. The second principle is be bold, take risks. And, you know, wherever innovation is going to come about, whenever anybody is going to bring us something new, it means a, someone has to take a risk. And people get really nervous about the risk word. Um, and one of the things I try to describe in the book is thinking about risk more as R&D, which, you know, we understand in science and medicine and technology that there's a process of trial and what? Error, mm-hmm. Right. Um, And so sometimes if you approach risk-taking with the idea that, like many things, when you take on big opportunities, you're going to have a trial and error. Keep going. That's the third principle, make failure matter. Push past the failure. Don't let it stop you. Learn from it. Take those lessons and make your efforts stronger going forward. And one of my favorite chapters in the book on that principle is called Fail in the Footsteps of Giants in which I take known success stories and reveal the failures that happened along the way before people found success. Oprah fired from her job as a news anchor and told she just wasn't right for TV. (laughs) Steven Spielberg rejected from film school. You know, Steve Jobs fired from the very company that he founded. In each of these cases, you know, we know the success stories. We don't necessarily know the failures that came before them. The fourth one is called 
reach beyond your bubble. And it's really a simple principle of building unlikely partnerships, making sure you surround yourself with people who have a different perspective or background than you do. The idea there is that, look, we can cover each other's blind spots if we have different perspectives, and we can widen the way that we see the world and the opportunity in front of us. That has been part of the secret sauce of every successful effort we researched. Mm. And then lastly is let urgency conquer fear, what Martin Luther King called the fierce urgency of now. And I love that principle. And what that says really is, look, we can get caught up in a very comfortable life doing, you know, maybe good job, good things, but not necessarily really living the life we aspire to to make a big difference in this world. Sometimes it's that sense of urgency like right now where people might be gripped by fear, disappointment, or disillusionment that might get them past that sort of fearful hump and push them to do some extraordinary things. So on the one hand, the book clearly addresses those people whose driving purpose is to make the world better. And Mm -hmm. we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that. But the other notion that I think it covers that I'd be interested in your thoughts on. You know, the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber has a notion that there will be peace in the world when each person finds their unique purpose. And it might be the bagger at the supermarket or it might Mm -hmm. be the person who's curing cancer. So Mm -hmm. when I read the book, I was also thinking about it as a way for people to think about allowing themselves not necessarily to just not necessarily to change the world, but to find their own purpose. Do you think that's a fair way to think about some of your principles? I really do. I really do. And I try to put an array of stories in the book to make that really clear, Roxanne. You know, and one of the stories I tell is of a very dear friend that has been a dear friend through life who actually was my sixth grade teacher. Mm. And um, we have remained friends to this day. And she was just a 21-year-old when, you know, she was teaching our class. And she had quite an influence in my young life. I was kind of a latchkey kid with a mom who was working full, single mom, working full-time as a waitress at night. And so often this teacher would take me after school under the idea that we were doing errands, but I knew really what she was doing was taking care of a kid who maybe needed a little extra loving care. So when I shared the manuscript with her, which I did, you know, she said, I realized my big bet was my students, that the purpose I found in my life was you know, really helping to lift young people into lives of purpose. And I think it really is important to say, you know, you don't have to build a great company or a movement to do something extraordinary. If you change the world in a positive way, that's its own form of a really big bet. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. And your teacher's story is a good one. The other story I loved in the book is the story of Loretta Claiborne. Would you share that with our listeners? Sure. So um, Loretta Claiborne is a spokesperson for Special Olympics, but she was born with considerable intellectual disabilities, and the doctors told her mother she should put her in an institution. Her mother would have none of it. She set about in life to give opportunities to Loretta and engaged her in Special Olympics and the sports. And Loretta talks about how that was life-changing Well, to give you an idea of where Loretta is today, again, a person 
born of a black mother on welfare. Loretta had intellectual disabilities. She went on in life to speak four languages, to address Congress. I've seen her speak at the White House. She holds records in terms of marathon. She's in the Sports Hall of Fame. And Disney did a movie about her. Mm. Um, it's a great example of someone who anyone looking at that early life would never suspect she could influence the world the way that she has. But she truly has, and I've seen people say, if she can do that, then I can do what I'm setting out to do. And that's really what I tried to provide in the book with stories that would tell people it is ordinary people that do extraordinary things. We have to get away from that idea that it can't be me. So I love that it can't be me. You know, as I think about what is going on in the world today, I grew up being taught and believing that each one of us needs to add to being impactful, whether it's small or large. But I th- I think a lot of people today feel overwhelmed with the, with the idea that anything can be done. Yeah, I think they do. But I think if they, you know, listen to, to their sort of soul or, you know, the voice that often speaks to us, they might very well see solutions for their community, their neighborhood, you know, their country, their world. It's going to be different for everyone, and that's what the book tries to point out. And, you know, I have to say another great example, and I'm fresh back from Puerto Rico last night uh, where Lin-Manuel Miranda took the Hamilton uh, touring group down there. And, you know, that's his Lucky you. You got to see it? Yes, and oh, it was really geez. quite remarkable, but I write about Lin-Manuel in the book and about how radical Hamilton was for its day, right? Just imagine this idea mm. that you're writing kind of a hip-hop or rap play where those playing our founding fathers are men of color and, you know, in some cases, immigrants, and yet it's beautiful and it's touched the world in a really powerful way. So even in the arts, we see fearless efforts that can change the world. But I will say there are also a lot of stories, Roxanne, as I think you know, that people have never heard of. One of my favorite ones is uh, that of Dame Stephanie Shirley. She was uh, born a Jewish child in Vienna as the war uh, was breaking out, and her parents made her part of what was a big uh, movement called Kinder Transport, in which Jewish children were sent to the U.K. to be cared for mm-hmm. during the war and to basically flee the Nazi threat. Um, so she was one of 100,000 kids that were part of this. She went to school in the UK and she was very interested in math, but it was a girls' school. This was in the, well, this was in the 50s. And they weren't, they didn't allow the girls to study math. So she got special permission to go to the boys' school. And then when she graduated, instead of going to college, she went into a computer business and wrote code. She started her own company with just $17, (laughs) and the first 300 employees that she hired for her technology company were women, many of them, you know, working from their homes and raising children at the same time. It's a remarkable story. Her business went on um, to have hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. She celebrated in the U.K., but, you know, she says that she wanted to quote, make my life one that was worth saving. Mm. 
So, you know, she really took that experience of others having saved her life and tried to really make it matter in terms of the purpose she took forward in the future. And it's a great story. You know, she said she had to adopt the name Steve in technology because she wouldn't get contracts from companies if she had used her name Stephanie. So um, it's another example of someone who has a very unlikely start to life and goes on to do extraordinary things. And, and Jean, you talk about these principles, but I can't help wonder... What other intangible things? So as I read the book, a couple of things occurred to me. So your mom was, you know, waitressing at night and then picked your family up from normal Illinois and moved it to, you know, a small town in Florida where you didn't know anybody yet, you know, she – saved up $400 to make sure you had the encyclopedia. She, you know, pulled you... Paid for it over about two or three years, though, in monthly payments. Yeah, you know, she pulled you on the first day of school out of a, you know, what seemed like a uh, poor example of a school and got you into a new... Um, uh, was it Presbyterian? School, yeah. mm-hmm. Presbyterian yeah. school that started up... And some of these stories make me wonder about is having a parent that believed in you or saw a future for you a critical element? Obviously, the woman, Dame Shirley, coming on the Kinder's Transport didn't have that. But what role does the parenting take? Look, I think there are layers of advantages that can bring more opportunities and really almost a sense of more confidence to people as they move through life. But again, I'll go back and say it is such a diversity of stories. I mean, Mm. if you look at Salva Duke, um, you know, who is one of, called one of the lost boys of Sudan, he really wasn't. At the age of 15, he was leading, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of other boys fleeing the conflict in Sudan to a refugee camp in Kenya. He said, we were the walking boys. We weren't the lost boys. Mm. So he's brought to the United States. He doesn't even know what a light switch is. He doesn't have, you know, the benefit of a cultural understanding or strong language skills. Yet when he learns that his father is facing death from dirty water, he decides to create an organization to, do, uh, to provide wells around Africa to deliver clean water. And today, he's been responsible for hundreds of wells, many thousands of people who have access to clean water because of Salva's efforts. So, you know, you would say he didn't really have parents around. He didn't have a secure yeah. system. So, yes, I was very fortunate to have a mom who believed I could do anything I set out to do, and she told me that on a daily basis. But many children are raised not having that benefit, and I tried to bring forward stories, you know, that would highlight those who've even had tougher challenges and somehow broke through. Yeah, and, and I do think as you read the book, you you do come away with the idea of, hmm, I guess anybody could do anything. Well, that's <laughs> true, but the framework of the book, of course, makes it clear that these principles really need to be applied. I mean, it yeah. becomes a playbook, you know, and hopefully principles lit up and made alive by the stories of people who applied them and, you know, in their fearless journey. Um, but one thing we really haven't talked about, we talked about risk a little bit, but, you know, often and too often, and this has happened to me in my life and I've had to check myself, 
we can get caught in a very comfortable place in the comfort zone. And, you know, we just have to make sure that we understand that, you know, great things don't come from the comfort zone. To really set out on a path where you're going to make a big difference or do something extraordinary, you're going to have to get a little uncomfortable. And, and Jean, how do you speak to people that might not feel like they've got the financial flexibility to get out of their comfort zone, that the risk has too big a financial impact for them to take it on? Yeah, well, that's a very real issue, and it goes a little bit, Roxanne, to what I describe about different kind of risk-taking. There's measured risk, and there's mm. reckless risk. And at different points in our lives, what you know, reckless risk looks like might change a little bit. But the point I try to make, both in terms of what we talked about earlier, about chunking down small things you can do each day, I, and you know, the beginning of the book saying, assess what you have and what you care about. And what are some small steps, no matter your circumstances, Mm -hmm. that you can begin to take now? So I do have the story of one of the Kiva co-founders who just up and quit her job and moved to Africa with the camera and, you know, provided a a technology platform that offered loans to, um, you know, small businesses across Africa. So she loaned over a billion dollars to small businesses across Africa through micro donations that people make. But not everybody has to do that. That's Mm. an extreme situation. And she was at a point in her life where she felt she could take that risk. But time and time again, I talk about people, you know, Sarah Blakely, who was selling fax machines when she started Spanx, and she didn't have a fashion background. She couldn't just, you know, up and quit her fax machine selling job. Yeah, exactly. She had to work it step by step by step, but eventually she found success. Jean, talk about the fail fest. You know, one one of the qualities that you talked about is the ability to learn from failure and understand that failure is part of the journey. I love the fail fest idea. Thank you. Well, you know, that came about out of a very public failure we had at the Case Foundation, and I had written a blog called The Painful Acknowledgement of Coming Up Short. It was a large water initiative, um, and it was failing, and we made the decision to be transparent about that. Well, what happened after I put that blog out there was people reached out from all walks, really, my colleagues and, uh, you know, a vast array of people thanking me for talking about failure and acknowledging it really saying, look, for all of us trying to do big things in this world, we're going to fail, but too often we don't talk about it. And I must say, Roxanne, particularly in philanthropy and nonprofits and government, there's a fear of talking about failure because there's a sense you're spending someone else's money. And yet, you know, we need more innovation now than ever before, and there's never been a better time to try new things and innovate. So if we can get comfortable with this idea that failure will happen along the way, you just need to push past it and keep going. And know that there might be even greater success down the line. You'll be maybe stronger in a position to go even faster, having learned the lessons of the failures. One of the topics uh, in your life story that fascinated me was you taking the risk to move. You were at GE, I believe. Yes. But And then you joined AOL. So, you know, people look at AOL now in an entirely different way than it looked back then. Right. right at I mean, peak, this was yes. kind of a crazy idea that nobody understood. How'd you go about making that decision or even thinking about it? Well, and this is something I would encourage your listeners to think about. One of the things I talk about in the book 
is really trying to dig deep and figure out if you have a true north. And for me, as I've said, that really was a desire to use you know, my time and my resources to empower others. And so there I was at GE in this great career trajectory, most valuable company in the world, and they had recruited me to try to build an online service for them with the team. And, you know, what I realized once I got there was the big, successful, comfortable company was less willing to take the risks it needed to take Mm -hmm. in an emerging market situation where you're trying to create something new. So when this startup down the street called the startup that would become AOL, and I started talking to them, it became very clear that risk-taking was something they understood and knew that they, you know, really had to apply in order to build this whole new medium of the Internet. And so I just figured if I'm really about empowering people and democratizing access to ideas and information and communication, I can probably do a better job and be more effective at that with this new company than this big established company. And of course, I never looked back. AOL did go on to carry 50% of the nation's internet traffic, and it was a great success story in the 90s. What did AOL look like when you went to work the first day? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I would say if you'd walk the halls, you would see people on a mission. Uh, although it was a company, we were really committed to this democratization that I talked about. Um, it was a very small company. There was only a small number of us. And, you know, what I write about in the book is I was trying to attract talent from other places. And too many times, you know, the calls I would make to great talent would say, no, I really, I'm not going to leave this, you know, good mm-hmm. job that I have now to, to go to a startup. And, of course, so many of those people later came to me and talked about how that really was the regret of their life because it became a rocket ship. You know, it was an extraordinary opportunity to help be part of the Internet revolution. And they later really regretted that they hadn't taken that risk. And did AOL look like uh, a a mishmash trying to figure it out, or was it clear from the outset (laughs) that there was... It was messy and crappy (laughs) like all new startups are. You know, we had chip desks, you know, kind of scrappy, scrappy offices and layoffs along the way, and it was a real struggle. We, We later called it... Uh, 10-year overnight sensation because we really were at it for a very long time before the world had ever even heard of us, Um, but then obviously grew to extraordinary success, and, uh, you know, that led then to the merger with Time Warner, and, of course, after that, things didn't go so well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was, that's a failure uh, to be discussed, what that looked like, but, Gene, one, one thing that I, I can't help but wonder about when when you and all the other early um, entrepreneurs who were intrepid about the internet, do you think at any point you imagined what it looks like today or or sort of the dark side that we think of the internet yeah. now? Was that even... You know, I'm asked that a lot, Roxanne, and I think we were all very true believers. You know, yeah. I have a chapter in the book called Peek Around Corners, We saw where the future could go, but to be very honest with your question, no, I would have never imagined a world in which I'm coming down the streets of Washington, D.C., and people are crossing intersections looking at their phones, where young couples are on dates at a table next to me in a restaurant, and they don't even look up from their technology. So we imagined a world in which this empowering tool could really change lives, I think we couldn't have imagined some of the downsides we're seeing, and particularly in the latest 
you know, my husband wrote a book, The Third Wave, talking about the three waves of the Internet. In this, you know, last wave we went through, you know, growth came so fast to young companies that in many cases, you know, they had millions of people using their products or services before they even figured out their ethical framework or their policies. Mm. And we're seeing, you know, some of the downside of that now. But, you know, from what I'm hearing from our colleagues that we know in technology, there is an honest effort going on to try to figure out how we get to more reasonable policies and make sure we're using technology to benefit mankind, which is what took a lot of us into the field in the first place. In the first place. The um, words that I used in the introduction for the Case Foundation, which are words as an entrepreneur myself, I'm wildly enthusiastic about. I, I use the term because the Case Foundation uses it called Inclusive Entrepreneurship and Impact Investing. Share mm-hmm. with us how you would define those things. Sure. Well, they're two different things, but they're really quite related. Inclusive entrepreneurship just recognizes that we need all the players on the field. Today in America, startups are at a 30-year low. We need all the innovation, all the ideas, and all the people coming forward to start new companies. And we as a nation need to do what we can to support them. The data is pretty stark. Last year, 90% of venture capital went to men. Only 1% of venture capital went to companies with an African-American founder. And really, the venture capital was consolidated to just three places. 78% of it went to California, New York, and Massachusetts. So we sort of have an innovation and economic imperative here to get all the players on the field. And inclusive entrepreneurship calls on people to do just that. So through that work, we encourage a more inclusive um, focus on entrepreneurs who have been left on the sidelines but have great ideas to take forward. I want to pick up on a statistic that you said that I think people would be shocked about, that Mm -hmm. startups are at a 30-year low? That's correct in America. Um, And it's really part of the reason we're so passionate about this work. And why do you think startups are at a 30-year low? Because that would be counter to what people might think where the world feels like there's 80 gazillion startups starting every day. Right. Right. Well, I think part of the reason for that, and literally the truth right now is that more young firms die each day than get created. And that's a troubling statistic. I think they see sort of the, um, all the jazz around Silicon Valley and what's happening there. And they assume that's just what's happening in the nation. But as I pointed out with the data, We've let the capital and the mentorship um, flow to just a very limited set of people Mm -hmm. who have ideas, and that's dangerous for us. So another factor, I think, playing a role are these very, very outsized companies, you know, whether they be Google, Facebook, um, who in many cases are keeping new innovations from coming about. They're either buying companies at a very early stage and shutting them down or just, you know, almost muscling them out as they enter the market. Um, so it's a combination of factors, but it should be a concern to everybody. And now now we can go on to impact investing. Yeah, so impact investing are investments intended to provide both a financial and a social return. It's really a new generation of entrepreneurs and investors who right at the outset of what they're doing give equal weight 
to both shareholder return, but also a benefit to society. We're super excited about it. Last year, the assets under management doubled in impact investing to $228 billion. Wow. So it's still, it's an early time, early days for impact investing, but the momentum is really strong. And I think this next generation is playing a huge role in driving some of that forward. But so are women as they get more and more power over capital They don't want to do things the same old way. They want to believe that they can do more with their capital than just provide a financial return. And they want to make sure that the way they're spending their money and their investments is benefiting society. You know, having been in the corporate world for 20 years and an entrepreneur for 30 and during all those years doing a lot of nonprofit work, one of the trends that I see that worry me, and you alluded to one of them, is that there used to be a role for antitrust action under the theory that monopolies end up driving what happens in the world. Right. Crowding out innovation. Crowding crowding out out. innovation. We've gone now to the notion that anything that makes things less expensive for the consumer is good. And the monopoly part of it is sort of goes along with it. And that's and that's okay. What, do you think that is part of the problem that we're seeing? I'm not so sure I would go as far as to call them monopolies. But again, I do think as companies achieve a certain level of dominance, um, it, it, it does become a factor where they crowd out other innovation and they crowd out competition as well. And so, um, you know, I think it's something we've seen, you know, focused on by members of Congress in the yeah. last year. and. Um, you know, but every consumer and every investor has a choice about where they're going to put their money. Mm. And, you know, if you believe in a more diverse, innovative economy, then it's something we can affect in terms of the products and services that we choose and the companies that we invest in. Yeah. I, you know, I hope that the younger generation thinks that as somebody in the book business, which has certainly um, been disrupted. Mm-hmm. And yes. Uh, you know, when you have some people who are very deliberately choosing to shop in independent bookstores as as a way of showing their influence with their dollars. But most people in the short run are going to operate based on sort of the immediate saving money or convenience. Mm-hmm. But I do see younger people, an element of younger people, operating more in the way you're saying. Do you see that as – you do see that as a trend? I do. And, and don't you have an independent bookstore, Roxanne? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I would say also, you know, my observation through the decades I've been focused on things is that the pendulum swings. Mm. And what I see out there is a real desire for community and for local. You know, more and more people are making the decision to eat local, to drink local. You know, we have a winery in Virginia – and we have this unbelievable following of Virginians who just want their wine to come from their local area. Right. Um, so I think it's a trend I see taking hold. Um, I'm hoping in the long run it provides, you know, many more opportunities for innovators everywhere. But I do think, you know, there's a little bit of a caution sign right now based on what we're seeing in the market. Yeah, I think that's right. So, Gene, how do you decide, because it takes donors like the Case Foundation to begin – impacting and leading in making these changes. So how do you go about deciding what you will or won't fund? Yeah, well, it really starts with the question of what we think we are uniquely positioned to do. You know, we have a team here that's really great, 
at putting um, a spotlight and a megaphone behind, you know, some of these people and ideas that are changing the world. And so we just ask the question is, you know, can what we can bring to this, is it unique, meaning that no one else most likely would be in the same position to do things for them? Wherever, you know, there's five others who could do it, um, then it's not going to be for us. But that really should be how we all go forward, right? We yes. should really be spending our time in life doing things we uniquely can do. And, you know, that's another theme that comes out of the book. You know, I love that notion, Jean. I, I think that I don't think we think about that enough. That this idea of you as your business, you as your foundation, you as a person, if you really think about it, what are you uniquely suited to do? Because it's easy to overextend yourself or have too many, you know, you can't have that many focuses. So I love that idea. Like, what each business, each foundation, each person is uniquely suited to doing. Right, right. And and really, I did try to provide some tips and techniques in the book to help people assess that in their own lives. Oh, and, and I think you do accomplish that a lot of money has been spent over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years by some very influential, smart foundations the Gates Foundation, the Case Foundation, a number of others. Yet some problems seem intractable despite the amount of money and and talent uh, that is committed to them. You know, the education system would be one. Trying to reverse poverty uh, would be another. How do you think about those issues as a, oh, as a philanthropist? Yeah. I think it's been a dramatic time of innovation and change in really meaningful ways across the world. I mean, more people have been lifted out of extreme poverty in recent years than ever before in history. More people have paths of opportunities to do things, even from small villages, to be educated. You know, I'm on, I work with a, a company in Kenya that takes internet to the last mile. Um, the kind of things we're seeing around the world that funders are making happen and innovators are taking forward, it's, you know, to me, it's a, almost a renaissance period. Mm. And I give great credit to folks like the Gates Foundation who are out there showing a new way, a more innovative path, understanding that failure is going to be part of it, staying in the game, and bringing extraordinary resources to change the world. Well, Jean, that's great. Thank you. My my last question is a question I ask all our guests, and that is, what's the book that changed your life? Hmm. Well, believe it or not, I write about it in the book. Uh, it's probably the story of Corey Ten Boom, who is one of the stories I have in the book. Mm-hmm. She was a single woman living with her father above their watchmaking business in Holland when the Nazis were threatening Um, And one day she saw her Jewish neighbor held at gunpoint, but the Nazis ran into his house to ransack it, and she ran out and grabbed him and pulled him Mm. in. And that began for her what really was uh, the rest of her life. She became uh, a fierce warrior in the resistance army against the, the Nazis and saved hundreds of Jews. So I read that book when I was a young teen, and I had the chance to hear her speak when they came and played a movie about her. And I really feel like seeing that early story of self-sacrifice and purpose played a role in how I wanted to spend my time in life. Mm. 
Well, Jean, I'd like to thank you on a couple of fronts. Uh, One is uh, for writing this book, Be Fearless. I do think it provides a a roadmap. It is very particular about how any of us can make the most of ourselves and accomplish whatever our biggest dreams are. And, And the stories that you present to illustrate those points are inspiring. So I want to I want to thank you for doing that and putting this out in the world so other people can make the kind of difference that you and the Case Foundation have been able to make. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Oh, Roxanne, it's been a real delight. Thanks so much for your kind words. And now I want everyone to go be fearless. Gene Case's book, Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose, is available now. And if you haven't subscribed to Just the Right Book, now's the time to do it. It's free to subscribe. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.